it is a really big deal to have the largest democratic socialist organization in the United States endorsing BDS. Organizations that are part of the Israel on Campus Coalition are feeling that public opinion is starting to turn against Israel's crimes. And knowing that they are losing that battle, they have taken to these very directly repressive channels instead. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. Oakland, I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. You're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. Coming up a little later in the program, we'll be joined by Mariam Griffin, editor of the new book, We Will Not Be Silenced, The Academic Repression of Israel's Critics. So stay tuned for that. But first, we're talking about the recent overwhelming vote by the Democratic Socialists of America, the DSA, to endorse the call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions on Israel in support of the Palestinian liberation struggle. On August 5th, at the DSA's annual convention in Chicago, the organization resolved to respond to Palestinian civil society's call by fully supporting BDS, as well as affirming that any political solution to the ongoing crisis must be premised on the realization of basic human rights, including all rights outlined in the BDS call. DSA describes itself as the largest democratic socialist organization in the United States. With more than 25,000 members, it has seen its membership quadruple with the resurgence of left-wing politics in the U.S. and Europe, particularly since the 2016 presidential campaign of Senator Bernie Sanders. The DSA vote comes after recent decisions by several churches to endorse boycott and divestment and other measures in support of Palestinian rights. The vote also sends a strong message to lawmakers that efforts at censorship backed by the Israel lobby are not slowing down the growth of the movement. Joining us to talk about the significance of the endorsement of BDS by the Democratic Socialists of America are two of its members and organizers, Delay Balogun and Rawan Tayun. Delay is a socialist activist and was recently elected to the DSA's National Political Committee. Rawan is a college leftist Palestinian activist and is president of Students for Justice in Palestine and the Young Democratic Socialists of America at her school. Delay and Rawan, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you. Yeah, it's nice to be here. Uh, so first off, let's talk about the resolution itself and how DSA members organized to get this passed with so much support. Uh, Rowan, can you talk about the background here? So there, we were definitely noticing how more and more people wanted us to take like a stronger stance on Palestine compared to before where it was sort of like a partial BDS where you wouldn't see like Fabrahamos um, at any of our events and things. And we, we have this Facebook group where we, it was really nice. We got together and we got to have like different little talking points. Like, okay, what do we really need to include? What would be better in like a different resolution? And even like before, before the resolution, we met, we all met in person. And when it got delayed, we were, we were just coming up with like a game plan. Like, okay, what if somebody tries to add an amendment? What if like all these other scenarios happen? And like, what are we going to stick to? I think that sums up like leading up to when the resolution was announced. And the resolution itself is pretty strongly worded. Um, can you talk about um, the, the wording of the resolution and, and really what it says? Yeah, I think that was very important to me to see that, that it was very unwavering and saying like, it is apartheid. It is, this is our support against an anti-colonial struggle. 
I think a big thing was emphasizing how this is what Palestinian civil society had gotten together and pushed as like one of the best ways forward, one of the best things we can do forward. So emphasizing that this is what Palestinians wanted. And I think, yeah, so it was very important to me to not sort of skirt around sort of like the racism that we as Palestinians are fighting against or trying to fight against with BDS. Delay, you're uh, now a member of the DSA's National Political Committee. And a few years ago, you traveled to Palestine on a delegation with the Interfaith Peace Builders. Uh, more and more from college campuses to social justice organizations around the U.S. were seeing Palestine solidarity activism become um, more popular in spite of efforts by Israel lobby groups to try and repress it. What's the significance of the DSA passing this resolution in support of Palestinian rights? And, and how does it fit within the current context of anti-war, anti-colonialist and anti-imperialist political organizing in the U.S.? I mean, it's it's really historic, you know, the... DSA, um, unfortunately, has been a little late <laughs> to a lot of uh, <laughs> left groups on this particular issue. Um, but we've seen with the huge growth of DSA during the past couple of years, I mean, grown by about 18, 19,000 uh, in the past two years, you know, with the huge growth of the organization and the influx of uh, newer, more radical members um, who, like, really understand that that socialists fight uh, are against and fight against oppression everywhere in the world and particularly uh, with what we have happening to Palestinians and you know being there a few years ago and and really seeing I mean it's, it's really hard to <laughs> think of the, the the words to describe the mm-hmm enormity of the atrocities that you you see in in, in Palestine. Um, But it is a really big deal um, to to have the largest um, democratic socialist organization in the United States endorsing BDS. Um, And like I mentioned on on Saturday uh, morning when it when it passed, I mean, you have had we've had labor, uh, some labor unions um, endorsing BDS. We've had other student groups and assemblies endorsing BDS. We've also had um, uh, churches endorsing BDS. Uh, so there's no way that the largest social organization in the, in the, in the, in the U.S. Is, is, is not going to endorse uh, BDS. What was it like inside the convention hall um, when the vote was put up and, and then after it passed? Well, uh, so we first had a debate, uh, first thing on, on Saturday morning. So uh, we had speak, uh, uh, you know, a few speakers for uh, the resolution, including myself, and then we had a couple of speakers against. Um, and it was really cl- quite clear that once we got to the speakers against, a, a lot of people were really, really excited about this, this resolution. Um, the resolution... Uh, finally passed. And really, I counted myself between 10, 15, maybe up to 20 hands among, what was it, six, six or so hundred uh, delegates who were, in, uh, who were in favor of the resolution. It was really exciting, and it was a really historic occasion. 
Uh, there's been a handful of detractors in the DSA who are upset that the resolution passed. Uh, notably, a, a former member of the DSA National Board uh, claimed that the BDS movement is anti-Semitic, you know, a, a nod to Israeli propaganda smears against the campaign. And this is happening while Israel lobby groups continue to complain that that intersectionality uh, specifically um, is a threat to support for Israel. Uh, Rowan, what's your reaction to this reaction by, by liberal Zionists within the DSA? I always say that it's it's very kind of just silly when you hear that, when you hear that BDS is anti-Semitic. And I say, you know, like you're saying that us criticizing Israel is racist when what Israel doing is like racism. Apartheid and occupation is racism. I always come back to that. They want to take the conversation and the focus of it away from what is the reason we're even trying to do this. And to me, I think they're panicking because they're outnumbered. They're so outnumbered, even though we're 25,000 people, even though, you know, we're big tent, so we don't all agree in terms of, like, ideologically or tactics or anything. But, like, they're they're overwhelmed. And I think it's just looking weaker and weaker when they complain about us criticizing Israel, especially, like, I noticed a lot of people coming up to us and being like, you guys are mentioning how in Congress is trying to criminalize being pro-BDS. You notice all these things. And we're like, yeah, we do. We're, we're kind of, you know, showing how afraid they are of this nonviolent movement, that they are willing to go to these kind of lengths to silence it. That even um, a Jewish rabbi with Jewish Voice for Peace, how she was barred from flying into Israel because of her BDS activism. So if they want to push themselves as this democratic, you know, free state, and I think they're just proving more and more that they're they're not, and they are what they are. They're occupiers. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with, uh, with 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 what Ron said. I mean, we really we really do need to to push back against you know some of these arguments. For instance, that. At, that you know, supporting BDS is as anti-Semitic. Supporting BDS, if you support BDS, then you're against the Israeli working class. You know what I have to say to to that is is that really the Israel, you know, socialists are for the working class everywhere in the world, um, but the Israeli working class is a bit unique because that very society, the society of of Israel, is built on the, the the colonization of, of Palestinian land and the, the current occupation and apartheid of Palestine. So the Israeli working class actually does benefit off of that uh, off of that occupation materially and, and currently. Um, but uh, what we also would have to say is that um, the Israeli working class itself should should um, in, in in a way to fight for its own liberation, it should fight for, um, it should fight against um, the occupation itself. Um, we, we believe that the Israeli working class really needs to, to do that. And in fact, when I was in Palestine, I spoke with uh, a few um, Israeli left groups and, you know, it, it's, they're, they're, very mal, they're very marginalized in, uh, in, in Israel. Um, but, you know, they themselves, they really do want to help out with the occupation, but, it, you know, they're very marginalized, and a lot of them are really, <laughs> I guess, almost driven underground. Um, I want to say that I feel uh, DSA Jewish Caucus, they just wrote this statement, like their Twitter is Jewish Solidarity, and I think they go into really, really good detail 
about Jewish solidarity with Palestinians and about how Palestinian labor is specifically is exploited in Israel and how that sort of like leads to I think it's similar to some of the tensions you see here between like undocumented immigrants and and you know American citizens and I found that you know really interesting I want to say specifically addressing this person who went up to speak for the opposition. He was sort of like, like he was opposed to the BDS resolution. He said he, he brings up this point we hear time and time again as Palestinian activists with like, oh, well, you guys don't have an exception for like Israeli artists. You don't have an exception for like, they're not military. They're not this. Like he brought up ballerina specifically. And I just want to throw in that that always frustrates me because we always see Palestinian soccer players are not allowed to go where they want and all the sort of restrictions that are put on Palestinian artists from going into territory to territory. Palestinian fans of Radiohead can't leave the territories and go to Tel Aviv and, you know, listen to their show. So I do want that focus because it's, it's, it's very interesting when they try to suggest that Palestinians are repressing art and culture when we've experienced from Israel time and time again. What's the next step here? Uh, Delay, as a member of the National Political Committee, what can the DSA do now to pressure people like Bernie Sanders, who has been explicitly against the BDS campaign, or other high-level, high-visibility politicians who are being supported by the DSA? Yeah, what, what, I, what I think is, is that uh, what that really goes to show is some of the limits of the politics, uh, the more liberal politics of Bernie Sanders, uh, versus socialist politics, right? Um, I, I, and what I do think is really important is that is that we uh, build a, a really a broad movement, rather uh, a broad movement to pressure to to pressure um, politicians, right? I think that is really I think that's very very important. Um, what I do see um, as far as the DSA's involvement in BDS and Palestine uh, liberation uh, movement is to, in you know, many different uh, chapters around the country. You know, I, I see us really getting involved, especially on campuses. Like there have been a lot of uh, really good uh, campus work regarding BDS um, and, and boycott work, um, and wherever wherever we can be of help. You know, I, I think it's, it, it's, this is, uh, it, it's, this is going to be very important. Uh, one of the things that um, I would mention, actually, is, I mean, I know that a lot of people don't have the ability to do it, but if you can, um, definitely link up with organizations that um, have delegations to Palestine. Um, the Interfaith Peace Builders, for instance, is one that's uh, who I went with a, a couple of years ago. Um, and if, you know, if the DSA can be uh, of assistance and having um, our members and other folks go and visit Palestine to really get a sense of, uh, of the, uh, the occupation and to talk with Palestinians as well as uh, Israelis who want to end the occupation, I would definitely encourage that. And uh, Rowan, your, your thoughts as well. As a member of uh, Students for Justice in Palestine and Young Democratic Socialists of America, um, how are you um, planning on pressuring politicians? Yeah, I wrote something that was very specifically um, tailored to college activists, college students um, who want to engage in BDS. I wrote it was on ydsforbds.tumblr.com. And I think a big thing was, you know, figure out what contracts your school has with, like, these really big companies. 
Uh, this is like one of the easier ones, but you know, a lot of our schools have contracts with Caterpillar, have contracts with G4S. And, you know, that's one of the bigger points if you want to economically pressure them. I was all, I mentioned also no platforming, um, Israeli politicians or ambassadors like to disrupt their talks, like very much anti-normalization, anti-normalization things. Um, just, I think also I would, I wanted to start like little workshops. I wanted to sort of create a workshop that could work on multiple campuses to let people know like what the movement is, what it is we're fighting for, you know, very clearly spelling out these are the international human rights laws that Israel are breaking because a big thing of BDS is like, you know, until Israel complies with international human rights law and very much focusing on the human rights aspect of it. And I think I think I wrote something pretty detailed in there, so I'm hopeful that people can read it and, you know, shoot me their ideas as well. Great, and we'll link to that on the Electronic Intifada. Um, that's the voice of Rawan Tayun and also Delay Balogun. They are members of the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. Thank you both so much for all you do and for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you, guys. First they hit with phase one, air strikes all day and all night. Phase two, rockets hit the Gaza Strip with phosphorus. Phase three, ground attack, how we gonna counteract? Boycott, divest, and sanction. Boycott, divest, and sanction. Boycott, divest, and sanction. Israel, you should be ashamed. Killing main thousands of civilians in our name. Claim you hitting terrorists, but children in your aim. Even murder relief workers, what's spilling from their brain? While they tried to drive the ambulance, so they couldn't stand a chance. Even bomb students, hospitals, Moss, Rafa, and Han Yunus. Shot them in their back like the cops to Oscar Grant. And in each case, the good old United States sponsored that. Seven million a day that we pay tax and APAC lobbyists is robbing us sometimes it feels like there ain't no stopping this but now nobody can deny it cause you made it too obvious naked truth exposed like the emperor's clothes the struggle's getting hotter and the temperature rose since 1948 when you formed the state palestinian people still defending their homes they ain't been surrendering no boycott divest and sanction boycott divest and sanction Boycott, divest, and sanction Cause they even bombed the United Nations Look, I'm Israeli, my government's so arrogant War criminals who call Palestinians terrorists For resisting extinction and occupation Comparing this to genocide and reservations of Native Americans uh, It's a massacre, kick out their ambassador Divest from their apartheid like South Africa Boycott them like King to Montgomery buses Show them we want peace, but only with real justice Be murdering the media and witnesses left We're gonna Stop shopping at all the businesses that invest in building their settlements and gentrifying our corners. Illegal walls over there and the U.S.-Mexico border. Build a worldwide movement till the truth is heard. And supporting the Israelis who refuse to serve. All the COs who ain't war when deployed to Iraqi stations. All the people rallying while the cops are chasing. If we enlisted in the system, we got an obligation. And we ain't got the patience time to stop the occupation. Yeah, boycott, divest, and sanction. Boycott, divest, and sanction. Boycott, divest, and sanction. Till this right of return for displaced and reparations. In Oakland, I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. You're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. We're joined today by Mariam Griffin, co-editor with William Robinson of the new book, We Will Not Be Silenced, The Academic Repression of Israel's Critics, out now from AK Press. 
The book is a collection of essays and testimonials from scholars, students, and organizers who are on the front lines in the fight against growing repression and the silencing of Palestine advocacy on campuses across the U.S. Archbishop Desmond Tutu says that the book is, quote, a stunning portrait of the extent to which the forces that suppress free speech are at work in the U.S. university system. Mariam Griffin, thank you so much for being with us today on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Nora. So first off, talk a little bit about your background. Um, you're a postdoctoral fellow at UC Davis, a campus in the University of California system that has seen its share of repression of students and members of faculty who criticize Israel. Can you talk about your experiences in academia uh, thus far and what led you to co-edit this volume of others' experiences? Absolutely. Um, so. I have been in the UC for a very long time. I did my undergraduate work and my um, I went to law school at UCLA. And then I was at UC Santa Barbara for my PhD. And now I've just completed two years as a postdoc at UC Davis. And um, one thing that having been at all of these UC campuses has done is, is it has exposed me to different perspectives of how these forces of repression, particularly um, as they target, uh, you know, uh, any kind of activism that is in any way critical of Israel or even activism that recognizes the humanity of Palestinians at base um, gets targeted. And, uh, it, you know, it, it could be timing. I don't want to attribute it all to campuses. But in my opinion, UCLA ha is a, an epicenter for uh, a lot of these attacks. And um, while I was at UCLA as an undergrad, there was um, some physical attacks against uh, pro-Palestinian activists at the time. There was just a ton of pressure against the Students for Justice in Palestine chapter. Um, it, it has gone through a lot of different phases, but one of the things that students have to do sometimes because of this pressure is that they subsume their SJP chapters into other groups like um, the Muslim Students Association, I believe, was um, the the uh, student organization that absorbed SJP for a time when I was an undergrad, um, and that kind of thing. So, you know, there's really just uh, all kinds of pressure that's exerted against students, against faculty, and against everyone in between. Um, and so we, we have to come up with different ways of responding to that. Um, when I was in law school, we decided that we were going to start a chapter um, called the Law Students for Justice in Palestine. And, um, you know, anytime we would have an event, people would come and uh, take pictures of the participants. They would ask, you know, disruptive questions to panelists that um, force them to uh, basically disavow terrorism, you know, even if the event had nothing to do with terrorism. So it was this uh, sort of, well, I would call it overtly racist um, association with anything that recognizes anyone whose perspective comes from a place of recognizing Palestinian humanity with the perspective of being pro-terrorism um, and just that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, we had that a lot at UCLA, but we saw uh, similar kinds of tactics um, at UC Santa Barbara. And it was at UC Santa Barbara where I met my co-editor, who was at the time a professor in my department. Um, and in my first year, uh, I, I started grad school in 2008 to 2009. 
And that was, um, you know, the December to January period when Israel um, launched its siege, one of its uh, many sieges on Gaza, um, and they call it Operation Cast Lead. And, you know, uh, I was very upset at the time, um, expressing myself on the internet, expressing myself in real life. And, um, and because of some of that expression on the internet, uh, an acquaintance of mine went and contacted my department and urged that they uh, kick me out of the department and alleged that I was engaged in racist um, and anti-Semitic speech um, because all I was doing was actually just sharing uh, journal articles about the the attack and and um, and and captioning them with my with my rage. Um, and so, you know, th- I was called into the office and, and happily I was in a department that was, you know, very supportive and they recognized that this was just um, basically racism, like, you know, seeing an Arab American express their opinions um, and and outrage against the, the killing of um, the mass killing of Palestinians was just, you know, calling that racism is just itself a, a form of racism. But, um, you know, it could have turned out differently if I was at a different department. And so that was sort of jarring for me. And then right after that, uh, uh, William Robinson, my co-editor, experienced uh, something in, on a much bigger scale that he writes about in this book. And that is that basically he shared some material with his students about Operation Cast Lead and a number of off-campus Zionist organizations then um, mounted a, a, a very strong pressure campaign targeting the administration um, on campus to basically get him censured and or fired. And that caused him to lose many months of sleep. You know, it caused him a lot of stress and it caused damage to his international reputation. And, you know, happily... He, he has allies all over the world that rallied to his um, to his cause and and also happily we were able to defeat those um, efforts but you know they cost they have a cost and so you know I'm sorry my answer is very long <laughs> in response to your short question but the point is that we really wanted to provide um, a compendium of just a few stories told by the people who actually experienced them that highlight the many different ways that um, the many different strategies that are deployed by these Zionist organizations to silence people who have, who share these perspectives. And again, the perspectives range from bare recognition of Palestinian humanity all the way to a strong critique of Israeli policies. And also, you know, the costs, to highlight the costs that those, that those strategies then um, wreak on, on people's lives that, that also range from things like people losing their jobs or losing their tenure battles all the way to, you know, smaller scale things that still matter. You know, the personal stress that this causes, the personal relationships that it costs. Um, the business relationships that it costs for some people, uh, David Delgado Shorter writes about that in his chapter. And so I think, um, you know, these are, these are important details that get missed in, um, in some of the coverage of, 
of these different attacks. The other thing that I felt was very important to highlight was that people um, who experience these attacks don't just roll over and, and give in. And so we wanted to make sure that all of the voices in the, in the volume, you know, um, just report on the different strategies that they use to, um, to resist the pressure to be silent. Um, and also how we as a community uh, tend to band together um, to really resist those efforts because this is not this is not a battle that we can win one by one. It's a battle that um, requires that we are always uh, working together in community. Mariam Griffin, um, you mentioned uh, the price that people pay for speaking out, and and I'm thinking of some of the contributors to this uh, the extraordinary volume of essays, Joseph Massad, who's been battling repression at Columbia University for years and years, um, Rabab Abdelhadi of the San Francisco State University, who has been the target of a right-wing silencing campaign, uh, Steve Saleda, of course, who just recently wrapped up teaching at the American University of Beirut and cannot find a teaching position here in the U.S. due to his blacklisting, essentially, uh, for speaking out against Israel's crimes against Palestinians. And two members of the Irvine Eleven, um, Tahir uh, Herzala and Osama Shabek, uh, who were students uh, from UC Irvine and UC Riverside, who protested a speech by uh, then um, Israel Ambassador Michael Oren in 2010, and were then investigated for a year by the county's uh, district attorney's office, and then ultimately found guilty of conspiracy to disrupt the speech. Uh, we covered that story as it was happening, of course, but obviously that story became an allegory of sorts in terms of how far local governments and, and the Israel lobby were willing to go to prosecute Palestine rights advocates. But but how, um, as you as you pointed out, this and, and as the students say themselves, through that trial, their voices only became more amplified. Um, can you talk about that essay by Tahir and Osama and why you felt it was important to talk about the Irvine 11 case in the book? Absolutely. Um, there were a number of reasons why I thought it was important. One is what you pointed out um, about the absolutely desperate lengths that people in power are willing to go to silence that per the perspective of people who are, um, you know, critical of the state of Israel. Uh, the other reason is to uh, make sure that we had some student voices because um, it's our opinion that. Um, no, I'm sorry. I shouldn't say it's our opinion. It's our. It's a fact <laughs> that these organizations target the university as a whole, as a space, and so basically anyone involved in the space is vulnerable to these attacks. Whether they are students who come and then go after a certain number of years, um, and are threatened, you know, personally with violence and death threats, are threatened by police visiting them, which happened at Davis, which happened at Santa Barbara, whether they're threatened um, with future work prospects by being placed on these public blacklists, etc. Um, and so that's the kind of thing that I thought was very important to include alongside the, the essays by graduate students, by lecturers, and by uh, tenured or tenure-seeking faculty. Um, but to get back to the first point that you raised about the, the really <laughs> desperate lengths that people in power will go, um, you know, I think the word allegory is is a great descriptor um, for, for that story because we see now um, that this trend is just 
getting stronger. Um, and so the forces of repression or the forces of, the forces of silencing that target people critical of the state of Israel are turning their sights more less less toward uh, shoring up you know popular opinion and more toward shoring up uh, the favor of people in power who are going to use repressive or tyrannical tactics backed by state power in one way or another to silence people because they've they seem to have lost or are losing the public opinion campaign and so um I, I know that the Electronic Intifada has reported on this, but um, not not too many other news outlets are reporting on um, this new bill that has been proposed in Congress, in both houses of Congress um, in March, that seeks to criminalize um, any kind of support for the boycott, divestment, and sanctions campaign against the state of Israel. And now, of course, BDS is one of the very famous you know, nonviolent international civil society movements um, that is all about people using the everyday small decisions that they have the power to make to collectively send pressure to an otherwise seemingly extremely powerful government. Um, and so instead of listening to their constituents, the U.S. government has decided to try to silence and criminalize that kind of expression. In any case, I bring it up, I'm sorry, it's a bit off topic, you know, but, but I'm, I'm trying to put it in conversation with what happened to the Irvine 11. Um, you know, imagine students who are engaged in routine student protest on their campus to which they pay exorbitant fees to attend um, and are not only censured by their university for engaging in what is ultimately protected political speech or, sh or should be anyway in this country, um, but also then are, are, have charges brought against them by the district attorney. So, um, you know, the, these are, when we're talking about the spectrum of strategies that are used, um, I think it's really important to focus on where the pressure is coming from. Because again, as I, as I said at the beginning, I think this really signals the fact that these organizations that are part of the Israel on Campus Coalition and others are feeling that public opinion, international public opinion, and public opinion in the U.S. is starting to turn against Israel's crimes. And, um, and that is very alarming. And so instead of, and knowing that they are losing that battle, they have taken to these uh, very directly repressive channels instead. That's the voice of Mariam Griffin. She is the co-editor with William Robinson of a new book called We Will Not Be Silenced, The Academic Repression of Israel's Critics published by AK Press. Um, finally, Mariam, let's talk about Stephen Saleda and his essay in the book. Um, actually, I want to read the last two paragraphs of his essay before we talk about it, because I think they distill everything into, um, into two paragraphs. He says, I believe deeply in the idea of education for improvement, not merely economic improvement, but psychological, intellectual, spiritual, and ethical as well. We cannot undertake this task in environments in which unpopular or unorthodox ideas are banished. 
The basic goal of a critical education is to vitiate the sacrosanct and demythologize the consecrated. We do this by fighting. No theory is worth anything if it doesn't put us in a better position to eradicate justice. No pedagogy is worth employing if it doesn't help students understand the transformative potential of theory. Insofar as the corporate university treats justice as a threat to brand equity, we must then seek the eradication of the corporate university. Um, tell us about Stephen Salada's case, what he talks about in his essay, and, and what his story tells us in terms of the state of academia and academic freedom when it comes to criticizing Israel. Yes, so this is a very dark story um, in, in a lot of ways. And um, so uh, the chapter from Stephen Salada is a, a little bit different than the rest of the chapters, and it's why we chose to finish with it. Um, Stephen offers a a critique of what is happening in academia as a whole. He connects that to, um, you know, the rise of corporatism, the rise of, of transnational capital as a priority in in the in the in the U.S. university, and also to settler colonialism. And I think that those intertwined stories are essential for understanding really the stakes of this fight. They're stakes that should concern people, everyone, not just those who uh, take a particular interest in Palestine and that story. Um, and so what happened to Stephen Salaita is that he was um, offered and accepted a job at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, a tenure job, um, and he went there, he moved there, you know, th this is a very typical um, way of getting jobs in academia, you know, you're offered and you accepted, you move to the place and you start your job. Um, and basically, during that time, during that summer, Israel uh, was committing another siege against Gaza, and uh, was extremely savage. And uh, Steve went to Twitter and uh, tweeted some um, of his thoughts about that. And those thoughts were uh, deemed unacceptable to, um, you know, among Zionists in the US. And so they, they mounted a campaign as they do um, with, you know, as they've done with all of the contributors and with many, many other people who um, have any kind of audience, basically, to uh, criticize Israel in front of. And uh, they pressured the university and they used um, you know, financial pressures and and threats to the university. And so the university backed out of their agreement with Steve and effectively fired him. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, um, this w it went to court and all of that. There was a settlement in favor of Steve. Um, and so, you know, he, he got a little bit of a recognition of, of wrongdoing, um, but not nearly enough. And, and the cost of losing that job was just a, a fraction of the cost that he ultimately has had to pay for opposing the mass murder of Palestinians in Gaza. Um, and so, you know, the cost, as you mentioned, was a, a blacklisting. He recently, um, published a piece, I, I guess it started as a Facebook post, um, you know, reflecting a little bit on being constructively kicked out of academia for holding these political opinions, um, political opinions, which are just like a human reaction to the facts, you know, it's like, I don't accept 
mass murder. <laughs> um, and for taking that position, you know, he has not only not been able to find jobs at at various kinds of campuses and institutions, but also when, you know, his his close colleagues, his collaborators, people who know his illustrious, um, you know, body of work, which is just amazing for any academic, let alone one who's, who's faced so much criticism, um, they, they try to arrange positions for him of various kinds, and the administration shuts them down. And, you know, these are ultimately decisions that could be characterized as, oh, they're financial decisions or they're, you know, risk-averse decisions or whatever it is. Um, we have examples of universities that make risk risky decisions and stick with them. So there are, you know, on other topics, universities are, are available to make uh, principled decisions rather than um, profit-driven decisions. But nonetheless, let's take them on their word. I think that that by itself is a an indictment of what's happening in academia, that across the board, institutions are making decisions that, ha that are hostile to academic freedom and they're hostile to the free and fair exchange of ideas um, and instead are thinking more about profit making and thinking more about, you know, um, just money. Let's, let's put it that way. Again, I'm, I'm saying that taking them at their word. I, I personally think that a lot of these decisions are ideologically motivated, but even if they weren't, the idea that the university is just um, blacklisting people who might cost them a little bit of money should worry everyone who, who holds an opinion that's critical of mainstream um, beliefs. What do you hope that readers get out of this book? Um, what are you What are you hoping um, is is the is the overarching theme that that people can connect with? You know, Nora, there's there was a, a fear that I had um, that might be reinforced by the the stories that we did choose to talk about today, um, which is that this book does the work of Zionist organizations by um, you know fear-mongering or by presenting all of these scary stories of what can happen to people if they speak out. But my, uh, or our, Williams and my um, uh, motivation in the first place for this, for writing this book was quite the opposite, was to shine a light on the strategies that are deployed in secret most of these uh, most of these campaigns happen anonymously, or they happen behind closed doors. Um, they happen with phone calls to administrators and to you know secret meetings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm not uh, being a conspiracy theorist. We have this book presents the data of exactly how those things happen. Um, and so we wanted to shine a light on those things so that they lose the protection of secrecy. And also to show people that even when, even when Israel's critics pay the ultimate price, like Steve did, and I never want to um, in any way diminish that price because he really has paid such a, a great price. Um, there, he, here he is. He's still speaking his mind. He's still standing his ground because ultimately that is 
we, we who, who take this position have the moral authority and feel that, that our position is about justice and about um, humanity. But, you know, taking this position that is, again, inflected by a commitment toward justice, you, you just, you can't compromise that. There's, there's no, there's nothing that's worth compromising that at the end of the day. Um, and I think all of the contributors and all of the people um, who are critical of Israel, who fight this fight on a daily basis, know that whatever price we pay here is nothing compared to the price that Palestinians are paying every, every day. I mean, here's Gaza sitting in the dark for 22 hours a day right now. Um, that That is just so much more urgent and important than, um, than the kinds of, of concerns that um, we may face if we are targeted with repression. And so um, I hope that people who, who read this book, who um, peruse the, the, the firsthand testimonies, the personal stories of these contributors, not only learn about you know, the strategies that Zionist organizations use um, and, and read between the lines about what that means about them losing power in, in the realm of public opinion, but also read these stories as stories of hope and stories that testify to the vast international network of allies of Palestinians, of supporters, um, of those who are willing to make sacrifices to ensure that one day Palestine will be free. Mariam Griffin, uh, you are the co-editor of We Will Not Be Silenced, The Academic Repression of Israel's Critics. Thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. For news, information, cultural features and reviews, and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on iTunes, support the Electronic Intifada podcast by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, Thank you for listening.